everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. People go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless, regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. We welcome you to Stand Up and Speak Up. It is a beautiful day in paradise down here in South Florida. And even with the rain coming in this afternoon, my flowers are happy. I'm really excited to be here today. This is an extraordinary show, and I probably say that about all my shows, but every guest I have is my favorite guest, and today is no exception. But before I get into our guest today, I just want to uh, say thank you to my guest of last week. If you weren't on the show last week, I interviewed four male breast cancer survivors and the spouse of, of one victim. I want you to go look into the male breast cancer uh, organization. They have an incredible mission. And for those of us that have never heard about male breast cancer, it is out there. If you have boys, if you have husbands, if children, you know, male children, please look into that. It was a fabulous show. And even my parents called up and said it was one of the best. So please look into that. It was called, uh, well, it was my last week's show. Go on to thewomanbehindthesmile.com. But today, guys, I want to welcome a very special guest. He, I was actually on his show, Whispers and Bricks, and we got talking, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is my new best buddy. I want to introduce to you my friend Ari Schoenbrunn, who is a 9-11 survivor, thriver, educator. Sir, thank you for being on my show. Hey, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about, about doing this. This is fun, and I do my research on my guests, and I knew a little bit about you because of our discussion, but I went on to YouTube. Folks, if you want to know about this man and what his mission is in the world, go on to YouTube and look him up. Ari, that some of the, the things that you've put out there, uh, and you've spoken around the world. So let me just let me tell people what you describe yourself as. It says, Ari Schoenbrunn describes himself as a speaker who wrote a book rather than a writer who likes to speak. You are a dedicated husband, father of five, corporate executive, native New Yorker, Orthodox Jew, and a 9-11 survivor. In that order, I think you put your priorities first. <laughs> Dedic you yeah. you, and your wife is on the show. <laughs> and she's <laughs> dedicated husband, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Um, the reality is that it wasn't always like that. Um, the reality is that what was most important in my life pre-9-11 was my work, my job, uh, the corporation. That was the most important thing in my life. Everything else was secondary. It was always daddy's got to work, you know. And, and um, I talk about this a lot in my, in my story that, you know, my kids used to, used to tell me, you know, daddy, can you come to the class play? And I go, no, sorry, daddy's got to work. You know, can you come to the, on the class trip, we're going to the zoo. No, daddy's got to work. Dad, can you come to the uh, mock trial? You know, that's after, that's after school. So that's after work. So you could be there, right? I said, no, daddy's got to work late. Daddy's got to work. Daddy's got to work. Daddy's got to work. That was always the refrain until that day. So I have a Fo question. I like to go back in my guest lives. When you were young, you grew up in New York. You said you were a native New Yorker? Um, I was born in New York. Um, I did spend uh, seven – I did go to high school and college in Israel. Okay. Uh, my parents moved to Israel when I was 14, so I went to high school and college there, and then I came back to the States uh, where I went on with my life. So for the most part, except for those seven years, yeah, native New Yorker. 
brothers, sisters? Where did you fall in the, in the group? Oh, okay. So we, we were four siblings. I have my oldest sister. Uh, then I have an older brother. Then there's me. And then I have a younger brother. Okay. And when you were young, what did you do in the city? What did you like to do? Play? Read? Give us an idea of who Ari is. Oh, oh, I was a huge hoops fan, loved basketball, loved to play. I played on a high school, uh, on a high school team. Uh, I played a little semi-pro in Israel. Um, and when, you know, even when, uh, when I started working, there was always, you know, at least one to two nights a week that I were playing hoops. And this went on literally until I was 40 years old. Um, and I just loved it. And then when I went uh, on or around my 40th birthday, um, I tore my ACL. I had torn my oh. meniscus. I had torn my meniscus two or three times, so you know I was used to that. Um, and then when I tore my ACL, I knew that you know my playing days are over because I couldn't afford to be out of work uh, for any extended period of time. So, but then again, you know, one door closes, another door opens. That's what led me to start playing golf. Actually, my wife, as a birthday present, she felt so bad for me that she got me five golf lessons as a birthday present, and she had no idea what she was what she was doing or getting into when that happened because I was I was hooked, hook, line, and sinker. I mean, I love the game, and and I started to play a lot, um, which takes me out of the house a lot. But um, again, I needed to stay in shape. Although my wife said that was that's not exercise. I said, why? I'm I'm walking seven thousand yards. Okay. <laughs> During the course, why isn't that exercise? But that was me trying to, um, you know, trying trying to spin things. There you go. Well, I I can uh, empathize with your ACL. I tore mine too when I was in college, and and I know what that can do. Uh, and I yeah. do I do play golf also, which started back then. But then I took a hiatus for all my kids. And when I remarried, the first thing my husband did was buy me new golf clubs oh, and new cool. shoes. So uh, you bring your wife down to Florida. We'll play some golf. It'll make her happy. She gets a Florida vacation. You get on a really nice golf course. <laughs> there you go. When we so, go out on vacation, when we go out on vacation, there are two criteria. It's got to be near a golf course, and it's got to be near a beach. Okay. She loves the beach. She goes to the beach. I go to the golf course, and we meet up for dinner. Okay. Well, Florida is <laughs> your place, my friend. There you go. So. The reason we have you on the show, other than you and I chatting about golf and the beach, is that you ask people, where were you on 9-11? And that's the first thing you said. And when I, when I knew that I was going to be on your podcast, I actually had a journal, and I was journaling that day. I'm very, not irresponsible, but my journaling is not consistent. But I did journal on that day, and I went back to that. So I want our listeners to think back right now. Where were you on 9-11? And Ari, where were you on 9-11? Please tell me your story. Okay. Uh, Buckle up. Take a seat. It's going to be a wild ride. I'm going to tell you that. Yes, it's amazing. Um, Yeah. So it was about 20 to 7 in the morning. It was Tuesday morning, about 27 in the morning. And I had my briefcase over my shoulder. I had my cup of coffee in my hands. And I yelled up to my wife, bye, hun, love you, see you. And I yelled up to my kids, bye, kids, have a great day in school. And I started to walk out the door. Um, like I did every morning and 20 to seven, I used to leave my house. I used to get to my office at eight o'clock. Well, my wife yells down to me and she says to me, did you do Baruch's book order? Now Baruch is my third child. Uh, he was eight years old at the time. And I found out that teachers have a wonderful way of torturing parents. <laughs> it's called the scholastic book order. Now, if you're a parent out there and you're listening, you're probably giggling or laughing to yourself because if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, in any event, um, my wife was a school principal, and it was a week before the Jewish holidays. So she was busy opening school, getting ready, uh, getting the house ready for the holidays, cooking and everything else, and she could not be bothered with dealing with my son because he was was a little bit of a difficult child, a little whiny. I don't think he was much different than any other eight-year-old, except for the fact that he wanted like every book and game on the pamphlet. So my wife said, it's your job to do it with him. And I was supposed to do it with him over the weekend. Um, But he left his pamphlet in school on Friday. And my wife wrote a note to the teacher asking her if he can have a 
an extension to get it in. And she said, of course, and she made sure that he brought his pamphlet home on, on um, Monday. And I was supposed to do it with him Monday night, but I was working late. As I said, you know, the Jewish holidays coming up. And as an Orthodox Jew, I was going to be missing a lot of days at work. So I was getting in early in the morning, 8 o'clock getting in, and I was coming home very late, 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I didn't do it with him Monday night. Um, if I had done that book order with him on Monday night, then my uh, – had, had that book order come home, let's say, on, on Friday, I would have done it with him on the weekend. And on Tuesday, I would have been sitting in my office at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you'd be interviewing somebody else because I'd be dead. Right. But because he left that pamphlet in school on Friday, I'm here today. So there are a lot of little things that happen during the course of the day that ultimately when you put it all together, I mean, I firmly believe that God was just looking out for me that day. That's, that's my only explanation. So I sat down with him in the kitchen, proceeded to negotiate with him for the next 20 minutes, whittled him down to two books, and I felt pretty good about that. And it was interestingly enough, the books that he picked were from a series called Survivor. Mm, wonderful. Now that, that was, yeah, when those books came, like a couple of weeks later, it sent a shiver down my spine. I looked up and I said, God, you got a great sense of humor. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, so I put the tear sheet into his, into his knapsack, put the check in there, and out the door I go. And now I am so ticked at my wife because that, that 20 minutes set me back 40. I didn't get to the Trade Center until 20 to 9. And my office is on the 101st floor, but you couldn't get up to the 101st floor in one elevator. You had to take an, an express elevator to 78. 78 was a sky lobby, uh, just like elevators and escalators. And then on 78, you would switch to get to the other local elevators that would take you up to the higher floors. So I got onto an elevator that came down on the right side of the lobby. I ran down there, got into the elevator, and got to the, got to the 78th floor. I picked myself got walked out of the elevator, and the elevator I needed to get to my office is all the way on the left side of the sky lobby. So I hung the left, started walking across the sky lobby, and I must have been about eight feet from that bank of elevators when, as best as I can describe, there was an explosion. I thought a bomb had gone off in the elevator. The entire building shook. The lights went out. The place filled with smoke, and I was literally thrown off my feet. And there was screaming and yelling, fire in the elevator. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, there's a fire in the elevator. A bomb just went off in there. I didn't know. Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I look around. Um, I see a door to an office. I open, the, I open the door. There's a fire warden in there. He was the guy who's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's the layman who tells everybody what to do and where to go in case of an emergency. And I looked at him. I said, what do we do? Where do we go? He looks at me and goes, I don't know. Mm -hmm course he didn't know we had no idea what had happened he was trying the landlines they were all dead i walked back out into the hall trying to figure out if i can find a way to get us out and i bump into a coworker of mine her name was virginia di chiara virginia was on the elevator that i was about to get on when the plane hit and as she described it to me she said the the walls of the elevator collapsed the ceiling collapsed a cable snap was sparking in the elevator the jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator it was ignited by the spark and there was a wall of fire the doors of the elevator had closed but they had started to close but they jammed open about a foot and there were three people in that elevator there was Roy Bell Virginia and a woman by the name of Brene Roy Bell jumped out first through the fire. He suffered second-degree burns. Virginia jumped out second. She suffered third-degree burns. And Renee, she ultimately died from her burns. Mm. All in a space of, what, six, eight, ten seconds. That was the difference between life and death that day, at least for these three people. So I bump into Virginia, and she is a mess. Her hair is singed. Her clothes are burned. She's got third-degree burns up and down her arms. She looks at me. She says to me, Ari, thank God. Please help me. And whatever you do, please don't leave me. I said to Virginia, I promise I will not leave you, and we will get out of here. Now, here's the irony. Virginia and I were not good friends. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she had been hired by Cantor. I worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. She had been hired by Cantor the year before, and the first department she audited was mine. And needless to say, she was very tough, and she didn't give me very good marks, to the point she almost got me fired. And there we were, she and I. 
And it was I looked at it as kind of a test, all right, because I could have just blown her off and said, sorry, lady, you know, you tried to screw me. I'm out of here. But that's not who I am. And our past did not matter. She was another human being who was in trouble, and I was the guy that God put there. And it was literally, I mean, I looked at it as a test, like, okay, what are you going to do? And I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was, Virginia, I will help you. We will get out of here, and, you know, we're gonna, you're going to be okay. Um, we walked down 78 flights of stairs. Uh, people say, how long did it take you to get out? I don't know. Um, we, I know we got out after the second plane hit, but before, uh, before it collapsed, and um, we got into an ambulance. But uh, can, I, can I stop you before you do this? Because I've, sure. heard, I've heard your story. I've, I've watched it multiple times. And there, there are, you describe going down that stairwell. Oh. <laughs> you got to tell that story because it, it's amazing. Okay. You know, okay. the 75th floor, the 50th got floor. It, can got you, it, can got you, it, got it. Can you go there? Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. thanks. All right. Yeah, there was the, in other words, I, before before we started walking down, I got her, I, put, I brought her into that uh, security office, gave her something to drink. I had to literally pour the water into her mouth because she couldn't hold the cup. That's how badly her hands were burned. Um, when the fire warden ultimately said we can get out stairwell on the left, which was amazing because that stairwell, I don't know how he knew, but that stairwell was one of the very few that actually went from 78 all the way down to one. Most staircases only went down 10, 20, 30 floors. Then you'd have to get out on a floor, walk around, find another stairwell to get you further down. This one went from 78 all the way down to one. How did he know? I don't know, but let me tell you, thank God he did. So it was Roy Bell, Virginia, myself, and the fire warden, and we started to walk down. We got down. Um, and I remember, we, I remember the order that we walked in. We walked in. The fire warden was leading. Roy Bell was next. I was next. And then Virginia was behind me. We walked in a line. And I said to Virginia, if you feel faint, if you feel like you're going to fall, fall forward, fall on me, and I'll carry you. Uh, Roy Bell was not too happy about that because <laughs> he figured I was going to collapse over on him. I said, Roy, I've got it handled. Trust me. I could do this. We got down to the 75th floor, three flights, when all of a sudden it's uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of the biggest miracles happened to me, and that was my cell phone rang. And most people, when I tell the story, go like, yeah, so what? Big deal. Well, this was 20 years ago, and the, there weren't as many cell towers, and reception in the World Trade Center was horrible. I remember standing up by the, by the window of my office trying to, you know, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? It was terrible. And here I was in the middle of the stairwell, in the middle of the building, on a day where there was no cell service, and my phone rang. I, I was so shocked. I picked up and went, hello? It was my wife on the other end of that phone. And she was crying, and she's telling me something about a plane going into the building. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said to Joyce, I'm in a stairwell. I'm on the 75th floor. I'm on my way down. Now is not a good time. <laughs> I said, I'll call you when I get out of the building, and I hung up the phone not realizing, of course, it would be hours before I'd be able to get a hold of her again. Now, here's the interesting thing. Roy Bell says to me, oh, my God, you got signal on your phone. Can I use your phone to call my wife? I said, of course. I handed him my phone. He dialed. He hit send. Nothing. Dead. I literally looked up and I said, thank you, God, because at least I knew now that my wife knew that I, was, that I wasn't killed when the plane hit, that I was still alive. We got so we continue heading down. We got down to the fiftieth floor, and Virginia turns to me and she says to me, "Ari, I can't go on. I can't do it." My first instinct was, "I'll have her sit down. We'll rest a little bit, and then we'll get up and keep moving." And then I said to myself, "You know what? If she sits down, she may never get up, and if she doesn't get up, she's gonna die." I mean, I had no doubt in my mind, and I'm gonna be honest with you: having somebody somebody die in my presence was not on my agenda for that day. I gotta be honest with you. So I said to her, "No, Virginia, you can do this." And somebody had a bottle of a Poland spring water. We uh, we gave her to drink, and we poured it on her arms to try and relieve her from the burns. And now I'm ca I'm coaching. I'm counting the floors down: 45, 44, 42. You're doing great. You're doing great. And we were doing great until 38. We got to the 38th floor, and it was backed up with people. You see, the firefighters had stopped the people from going down because they were coming up. And I'll never forget, there was one woman who heard our footsteps, and she turned around. She saw Virginia, and she went like, ah! And Virginia turned to me and said, Ari, how, how bad is it? I go, Virginia, you, you look great. 
You're fine. You're going to be okay. I mean, I needed to keep her spirits up because I knew she was in trouble. But the only thing I can do is try and, you know, keep her spirits up, as I said. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm really nervous because we're not moving. So I started to yell out, is there a paramedic in the building? If you're a paramedic, please, I have a burn victim here. We need help. If not, please step to the right and let us through. And they did. People just squeezed over as far as possible, and they literally opened a path for us to go down. We got down to about the eighth floor. And there was water all over the place. I mean, ankle-deep running water. You see, the sprinklers worked very well on the lower floors where there was no fire. <laughs> they were totally knocked out with the plane hit on the upper floors. Uh, so I told Virginia, Virginia, take it real slow. I figured to myself, if she slips and falls, I, there's no shot. I mean, it's going to be game over. So we got down. We got down to the first floor. Oh, God, right. We got down to the first floor, and the fire was still, we were still the four of us, right? We had passed all the people, still the four of us, and the fire warden is still leading, and, he's, and we get to the first floor, and he keeps going down. And I go, like, where are you going? He goes, we got to get out through the garage. I turned to Virginia. I said, we just went down 78 flights of stairs. What's another four or five? And we continued down. We got down about two flights when all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some person yells out, where are you people going? So I yelled back up, we're going out through the garage. And he says, no, no, you can't get out through the, gar through the garage. You've got to come back up here and come out through the first floor. So I turned to Virginia and said, we've got to go back up two flights. And she said a few things that I can't say in mixed company or on the radio or at any company. And we headed back up. Now, here's the amazing thing. Who was the guy who opened the door? I, I don't know because I never saw him. And why did he pick that moment to open the door? I have no idea. But that guy being some saved our lives that day. Because I found out later there were people in that garage that never got out. Who was this guy? I don't know. I honestly, I believe he was an angel. That's my feeling. Okay, mm -hmm. you can think whatever you want, but that's that was my feeling. I think God sent an angel to save us. We get out on the first floor, and we walk through the building, and we get outside. It's a whole long story, but uh, I saw a cop. I asked him what to do about the burn victim. He said, "Go across the street in front of the Millennium Hotel. There'll be ambulances there." I get her into an ambulance, and I breathe a sigh of relief because at least now I know that she's getting medical attention. Well. I turned to the driver and I said, you know, why aren't you leaving? He said, we can't leave until we fill the ambulance. They were expecting a huge amount of casualties and they wanted to fill every ambulance. Virginia is writhing in pain. And I say to Virginia, hold on. They wouldn't let her lay down. She had to be sitting up because they needed to put as many people as they could in the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And I said, Virginia, hang on. You're going to be okay. I promise you're going to be okay. They finally fill the ambulance, and the guy says, the EMT goes to the driver, okay, we're ready to go. So I, when, when, once he says that, I, again, I breathe a sigh of relief because once that ambulance leaves, I'm going back to the building to see where my friends are to see if I could help. That's the only place I'm going. I'm not going anywhere else. Virginia turns to me. She says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. Now, I don't want to say I was in a comfort zone because of what was going on, but the reality is that if I needed to get someplace else from where I was, I would know how to do that because I knew the area very well. And the thought of getting into an ambulance and going God knows where didn't excite me. And besides, I'm looking to help. That's what I want to do. I want to help. So I turned to Virginia. I said, you know, Virginia, you don't need me anymore. I'm going to get a hold of your mom. She's going to meet you at the hospital, and you're going to be okay. She literally turns to the ambulance driver and says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. I look at the ambulance driver. He looks at me. I see it in his eyes. He's thinking, buddy, this is not a cab service. I'm thinking, I don't need a cab. But I look at him and I say to him, you know what? Maybe for our own psychological well-being, maybe I should come, come with her. He says, fine, hop into the front. And I got into the front of that ambulance and we pulled away. If she wouldn't have insisted that I get into that ambulance... I would have been standing at the base of that building when it came down, and I would be dead. There was no doubt in my mind. But she insisted that I go with her, and that's why another reason why I'm here today to tell you my story. You know, we ultimately got to the hospital. I got her there. Um, the rest of the day was long. 
Um, I ultimately got home at 5.30 in the afternoon. There were 20 people in my living room, and I had no less than 100 phone messages, literally. I used to have a, one, of those, um, one of those tape recorder you know, answering machines, mm-hmm. and it, it was a micro cassette. I still have the cassette. I have nothing to play it on, but I still have the cassette. But I learned something very important that day. You have no idea how many friends you really have until they all think you're dead. That's a true statement. That's a true <laughs> statement. And, and I've, I've got copious notes from when I was watching you on, on YouTube. And, and I wrote down here that you saved Virginia, but she ultimately saved you. That's exactly right. That's what and I said. Then, and I love the part where, you know, you got to hospital. I've, I've gone through this during COVID, too. It's like, you're not family, so out. You get kicked yeah. out of the hospital. Yes, yes, right? that's absolutely right. I was with her in the emergency room, and then the doctors all left her, and, and she was all by herself, and I'm, I'm sitting there. So I started to yell, literally. I started to yell, is there a doctor here? Is there no? Come on, what's going on? I have a burn victim here. What, where is all right? So some doctor comes over and he says, what's going on? What's all on? He says, don't you see this poor woman? Do you see what's going on? He goes, who are you? I go, who am I? I'm her coworker. I brought her here. He goes, are you a relative? I go, no. He goes, you can't stay. You've got to get out. I go, what, what are you talking about? Hospital protocol. Hospital protocol? We're under an enemy attack and you're worried about hospital protocol? Are you kidding me? Sorry, pal. And they literally threw me out. So where'd you go? What did you do? Oh, Lord. Well, I had no idea where I was, okay? We were in St. Vincent's Hospital. I don't think I'd ever been in that neighborhood before, Um, but I had a brother who worked uptown on 48th Street, 47th Street and 6th Avenue, and I was on uh, 7th Avenue and 12th Street. So I figured, all right, you know, I'll walk up to my brother's office, but I had no idea where I was, so I turned to somebody and I said, excuse me, can you tell me how to get uptown? And the guy looks at me like I'm crazy, goes, uptown? Follow the crowd. <laughs> Everybody's going uptown because you know what? Nobody's going downtown. <laughs> so I literally, um, I ultimately, I, as I started walking, I realized I had a friend of mine who had an office on 16th Street and 9th Avenue. But this was no ordinary office because he, he was in the financial printing business. And so they were used to having customers come and stay overnight as they were working. So he had like a, a workout room, a billiard room. He had showers. He had like the whole nine yards. My problem was I didn't have a change of clothes. Otherwise, trust me, I would have showered. But um, so I went there first and I started to call people to let them know that I'm alive. And, you know, when I finally got a hold of my brother, um, he said, come uptown. I actually wanted him to come downtown. That's another story. But I ultimately got to his office, and uh, this was when I got to his office. You know, I, I rang, and it's another whole story. But I rang the bell. Uh, they, you know, and they answered on the intercom. They go, "Who's there?" I go, "It's Ari Sherman. I'm here to see Elliot." They said, "Just a minute," and they buzz me in, and I walk. His office on a lower level. I walk down three or four stairs, and there was a double doors, set of double doors there, and I go through the double doors, and about. 20 yards past, I see my brother, um, and he was my younger brother, and, and I walked up to him, and I, I grabbed him, I hugged him, and I just started to cry. You know, I, I tell people, I was very strong that day. I needed to be. It was my survival. It was Virginia's survival. You know, people were relying on me. I needed to be strong. And now, finally, I was with somebody that I could lean on. And I just totally lost it, and I started to cry. My brother started to cry because I started to cry. But it was no big deal because the Schoenbrunns are very big criers anyway. <laughs> we, we, you know, we cry at the drop of a hat. And then, of course, all of his, all of his friends started, you know, wanted to find out what happened. Yo, you were there. What happened? You know, who, you know I, I didn't really want to relive this thing. I said, Ellie, let's go. Let's get out of here. And, uh, yeah, and we finally got out, and we actually caught a subway to Queens, and then I called a friend of mine who had a car service, and that's how we got back. And my brother came with me to my house, and his wife uh, picked him up from there. Interesting, um, the, one, the, the one thought that sticks out in my mind after all this happened, all right, it was about 11.30 at night, and everybody left, and, you know, everybody calmed down, and my wife looks at me, and she says to me, are you getting paid on Friday? <laughs> Fair question. I went like, I don't know. She goes, do you need to look for another job? I go like, I don't know, but we'll find out. 
Well, the funny she, things that go through your mind, huh? right? It was, it's, a lot of stupid things went through my mind, by the way, that day. Um, but you know, if you, by the way, I did write a book. It's called Miracles and Fate on Seventy Eight. Um, you can get it through my website. And if you really want to know the whole story, it's, it, it's in the book. All the stupid things that I did during the course of the day and the stupid thoughts that I have, uh, it was it was really um, it, it was just you know it's it's real. You know what I'm saying? It's not just put in there to you know to to lighten up the book which by the way you will laugh and you will cry I will guarantee you that um, but it's all everything in there is like all true it's not you know it's not uh, historical fiction or anything like that but um, well I want I want you to put the book on audible because I've heard your voice and I, I listen to a lot of books on audible and if it's not the author's voice it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact and your book would be fantastic so that's going to be your next life project there you go Miracles and Fate on 78 on Audible, coming soon. Yeah. But what I wrote down when I was listening to your story, Ari, is that you went through this, you were the coach. You know, you got the call, and you and I have talked about having the call in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were a coach, you calm people down, especially with Virginia. Did you ever get a hold of Virginia's mother? Um, yes, I did. Yes. From the hospital, this was, or where? This was, this, this was, um, I had no signal on my phone you know, throughout this entire episode. When I was thrown out of the hospital, um, I, I needed a phone because I wanted to call my wife. I wanted to call Virginia's mom, um, and, and my phone just wasn't working. And all of a sudden, I saw a guy walking down the street, and he's talking on his cell phone. I was so amazed. I went like, <laughs> true. I went like, when this thing's all over, I'm going to find out who his carrier is, and I'm going to switch to them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he has service, you know. I ran over to my sister. Excuse me, can I use your phone? This is an emergency. And he goes like, uh, "Yeah, sure, yeah." He says, "Listen, uh, I'll call you back. Some guy needs my phone." So I, he hands me the phone. I dialed. The first person I called was Virginia's mom. Now I told this to my wife six months later. <laughs> yeah. She didn't talk to her. <laughs> she was so mad. She goes, "Why didn't you call me first? I said I promised I'd call her mom." Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I dialed the number. And her mom answers the phone. I said, hi, Ms. DiChiara. My name is Ari Schoenbrunn. Uh, your daughter, Virginia, is alive. She is in St. Vincent's Hospital. She is severely burned, and I recommend you get down there as quickly as possible. And all I heard on the other end was, ah, 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 ah. Finally, a man's voice comes on. I guess she handed the phone to her husband, and I repeated the story, and he said, thank you very much, and I hung up the phone. And then I turned to the guy whose phone it was. I said, can I make one more call? And he heard the conversation. He goes, yeah, of course. So I, I called my wife. I dialed. I hit send. Nothing. Dead. I went, forget that carrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh, then, then it led me to, uh, I, found, I found a restaurant who had phones, and they were busy, and they didn't let me use the phone, and some guy was sitting there eating breakfast or lunch with another guy, and he said, my apartment's around the corner, five doors down, come up to my apartment, use my phone. This guy was a saint, actually. Um, and I went there and I, and I, you know, ultimately I was able to get through to my wife from there. And that was like hours later when I got through to my wife, she started to cry. I go, honey, what's the matter? She goes, tower two, tower, uh, tower one had collapsed. And the last time she spoke to me, where was I? Yeah. I was on the 74, 75th floor of tower one. She was sure I was dead. She was sure I went down with that building. She was trying to figure out who was going to say the mourner's cottage, the mourner's prayer for me because I was yeah. dead. She was trying to figure out how she's going to tell daddy's four kids that daddy's gone. And thank God, thank God, you know, we didn't have to do that, you know, because I did make it out. (sighs) It's an amazing story, Ari. And by the time, I mean, what was amazing to me, too, is that you were, you call it downtown. But when you started going uptown and were making your way through New York, so many people didn't know what had happened at that point, right? And then all of a sudden, then I guess it was hitting the news. Yeah, that was that was also part of the problem. Um, whether or not they had heard what happened or, or didn't hear what happened, it was a beautiful, beautiful fall day, if you mm-hmm. remember. There wasn't mm-hmm. a cloud in the sky. There were outdoor cafes, and people were just – I remember this like it was yesterday. It was 6th Avenue. I was on 6th Avenue and 21st Street, and there were people sitting out there, and they were – they were eating and they were laughing and, you know, just going through normal life. And it, 
it angered me so. I was so upset because I just was li living through hell, and these people are like nothing happened, you know. But who am I to judge? And I certainly didn't judge, um, and I just you know went on my way. But I, I just remember this is so awful. It was like. And it was so interesting because 6th Avenue, which is a huge street, as everybody knows, um, there wasn't a car on the road because there was no traffic. They weren't allowing any cars to go. And I tell people it was like a snow day without the snow. Mm. It was just – there was nobody on the road. There was – it was just – everything was calm and serene. And it was just like – it was amazing. It's absolutely amazing, but uh, you know, and, and it's you know, you know, like I said, you know, you're five blocks—not five blocks, literally—but you know, you're five blocks from hell, and and here it's a different world. So, how long did it take you to really absorb what had happened and and get it? I mean, I say that because after after Lou died, when he died suddenly, it took me about six months to really grasp what had happened and say, okay, you got to get your stuff together. You know, you have to go back to real life. You have to go back to the kids, to the family. How did you react to them, and how did this change your life at that point? All right, so let me – I will begin by saying I was the same guy on Tuesday – on Wednesday that I was on Tuesday. The only difference was I lost 658 friends and coworkers. Yeah. Two thirds of our office was 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 uh, wiped out. You know, they they were they were murdered. Mm -hmm. I, I used to say they were killed. They weren't killed. They were murdered. Uh, Six hundred and fifty-eight people. But my life did not change. Um, and I, I tell this to people. People look at me like I'm crazy. But I, it was it was true. The only time my life started to change, the only the only time that it started to sink in was. Um, the, the very first time I actually told my story, and it was a 20-minute version of the story, uh, was six weeks later when I was invited to come and speak at a uh, dinner for uh, my friend's um, school. Her kids went to yeshiva, private school, and they were having their annual dinner, and uh, they asked me to come and speak. And that was the first time that I spoke. And uh, the next day, the dean of students called me up and asked me if I would address the kids in schools, the high school, if I would address the high, the high school kids, which I ultimately did. And then one kid taped it, and his mother listened to it, and she worked for a charity organization. So she called me, and she had me speak, and the thing just snowballed. But once I started to speak, it started to sink in what had really happened. The, the, it was just – I, I didn't realize – Right off the bat, and and I I attribute it to being a little bit in shock. I I think I was mm -hmm. I was in shock. I was probably in denial uh, about what had happened. It's just something you don't want to think about. But as I told my story more and more, it it really sunk in, and I realized you know, the magnitude of what had happened and how I was so lucky to be saved and given a second chance. And I talk about I talk to people about that all the time. Everybody goes through something in their lives, whatever it is, okay? Nobody leads a perfect life, nobody. And the people you think are leaving, leading the perfect lives, those are the people usually having it the worst. But everybody goes through something, all right? And I talk to people and I say, you can, whatever you've got going, you can get through it. If I can get through it, you can get through it. And I, and I give encouragement, and I give inspiration and motivation to people, you know, to let them know they're not alone. Most people, when they go through something, they think they're the only ones in the world going through it. And it's not true because there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that are going through the exact same thing. They just don't know it. So I come along and I bring guests on my show who are going through things that they can talk to the audience and they can say, look, I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I went through and here's how I got through it. And they will connect with people in the audience. So... You know, I had a call, and God said, I'm giving you a second chance. What are you going to do with it? And I changed. And, you know, my, my family became the most important thing in my life, all right? You know, Daddy was at the school plays. Daddy was on the class trips. And Daddy was wherever his children and now grandchildren need him to be because that's what's important in life. It is, and, and I'm sure your kids appreciate it. They may not know it now, but it, well, I guess it's been 20 years, so maybe they – how old are the kids now? Okay, so uh, they range in age uh, 35, 33, 28, 26, and 17. There was the test. 
So it was the middle one that was the book. That's right, Baruch, my, mid, my middle son. He saved his dad. He did. He did. Yeah, there was actually an article. They did an article in the Daily News after 9-11, and, um, you know, they have a nice picture of, you know, Baruch giving me a hug and a kiss and says, you know, know, Baruch saved Daddy's life. It was just, it was very touching, very moving. Well, I've got goosebumps just thinking about the whole story, and and then I love the story about the youngest, and he kind of was the bonus baby, right? Yeah. I, we had four children. Before 9-11, we had four kids, two girls, two boys. We were very happy. The doctor told my wife after our fourth one was born that she wasn't going to be able to have any more kids. And we were fine with it. Five, four kids was, you know, two boys, two girls. It's perfect, right? And then two years after 9-11, Yoni comes along. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was a shock to both of us. Um, but I knew that and I'm still waiting for it but I knew that this this child has to be something special um I don't know what he's going to do in his life but I think he's going to do something very special in life because there's a got to be a reason why eight and a half years after the doctors told my wife she wouldn't be having more kids that we would have another child so I I have you know I'm waiting to see what he does he's going into 12th grade so he's graduating high school next year um, and then we'll see. We'll see what happens with him. He's the one that will bring you the greatest joy. Just hang in there. Or put I, me into an early grave, one of the two. <laughs> I keep saying that about my youngest, and he's 27. <laughs> and just the kindest soul, the kindest of souls. Yeah. Uh, so how do you leave your house in the morning now? Oh, now, well, now I don't leave my house in the morning because I... Oh, yeah, I guess my, not. I moved my office into my house. Um, I left corporate America four years ago. Um, I worked at Cannon Fitzgerald for the better part of 23 years. Um, And four years ago, I said I had enough, and I wanted to devote my time to uh, speaking, telling my story, uh, starting a podcast, you know, just putting the word out there about, you know, see who I can help, you know, became a coach, uh, just to try and help people uh, to get through, you know, normal daily lives. You know, I, it, it's interesting because um, you touched upon, but I, I avoided it, uh, mm-hmm. upon, you know, how my kids uh, reacted to the whole thing. And it was very interesting, I have to tell you. Um, my oldest daughter was 15, and my younger daughter was 13. And Baruch was 8, and Avrami was 6. So, um Avrami and Baruch, really, they, they had no idea what was going on. They heard, obviously, you know, they sent the kids home and somebody had to be home to pick the, you know, to, to make sure that they, you know, to let them into the house. Um, but they didn't really know what was going on. My 13-year-old, my 15-year-old was in school and it was second period and the teacher was running a little late. And then all of a sudden, the teacher walks in and she goes, she, uh, my daughter went to an all-girls school, the yeshiva at all-girls school, and the, and the the teacher walks in and she goes, oh my God, girls, did you hear? Two planes flew into the World Trade Center. Bodies are flying out the window. It's just terrible. And my daughter is sitting in the back of the room and mm. her friend next to her turns to her and says, honey, doesn't your dad work in the World Trade Center? Mm. And the teacher heard and she goes, oh my God, honey, your dad works in the World Trade Center? She he says, you know, do, do, you, do you want to call somebody? And my daughter, who today is an OBGYN, okay, she looked at the teacher very calmly, and she said, well, who would you like me to call? And the teacher looked at her like, what? She goes, well, if my dad's dead, he's not picking up the phone. And if my mom hasn't heard about it yet, I don't want to be the one to tell her. So who would you like me to call? And the teacher well, was standing there, open-mouthed, like a jaw dropped, and like, uh, who are you, kid? Anyway, but she, she forced her, basically, to go to the principal's office, and she did, and then she called my wife, and then they, that's when they started to cry and whatnot. But that was, that was Hani's reaction. To her, everything was black and white. There was no gray, you know? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting. I, when, we and I, when you and I talked about, when I got that call from my oldest son about my husband dying suddenly, um, I was so concerned about my youngest because he was in high school, and I knew social media, someone on social media was going to tell him. And right. I needed to get to him first 
Right. Uh, and that's it's a very uh, emotional moment when you know you have to tell your child that a spouse, is, you know, your dad has died. Right. Uh, thank goodness your your kids didn't get that call, but I know it was going through your wife's mind, and uh, I just can't imagine. Um, it's just I'm still sitting here. I've got goosebumps through this whole story, Harry, and I've heard it. I've, I've watched it for a couple of days in preparation for this, and it's just it's totally amazing, totally amazing. Wow. So you have um, five life lessons that you talk about as a coach. And Ugh. the first one, I, I didn't prepare you to, to give these, but I know that you know them. And the first one is about life is not about what happens to us. It is what? Life is not about what happens to us. It's about our reaction. We have no control over what happens, okay? We have, I had no control over those planes going into the building, okay? But I did have control over my reaction to what happens, and that is crucial because it, it'll come out the way you want it to come out in the sense that, you know, if I react one way, it's, this is going to be the path that my life is going to take. If I react a different way, that's the way my life, that's the path that my life is going to take. So you have to know, you have to know yourself and you have to know that there's always a good reaction. There's always a bad reaction. It's just the question of which, you know, what are you going to do about it? What is going to be your reaction? And the second one was God whispers through our minds and hearts. Oh, right. That, by the way, is how I came up with the, uh, with the title for my podcast, which is called Whispers and Bricks. I love it. Um, I love the story about that. So go ahead and give us that one. Oh, so you want that story? I do. Uh, okay. So it, it, it's about a young executive who's, who's uh, climbing the ladder of success. He's, you know, he, he's just, he's really making it. Goes, and, goes out and buys himself a brand new Jaguar and he's driving up some city streets and maybe he's going a little too fast. You know, he sees some kids darting in and out, and then as he passes by, all of a sudden, he has wham! A, a brick. His car gets hit with a brick, and he slams on the brakes, and he puts the car in reverse, and he pulls back, and he jumps out of the car. He sees this kid, and he grabs this kid, and he says, why did you do that? Why did you throw the brick of that car? You see that dent? You know what that's going to cost me to fix? It's a brand new car. It's going to cost me a fortune to fix. Why did you do that? And the little boy looks at him and goes, please, Mr. Please, I... I didn't know what to do. You see, my older brother fell out of his wheelchair, and he's too big. I can't lift him up, and I, I couldn't get anybody to stop. I didn't know what to do. And the boy, and the, this executive turns to me and says, where's your brother? And he takes him by the hand, and they walk down to the end of the block, and sure enough, there's a boy in the, in the street in an overturned wheelchair. So this guy takes the wheelchair and turns it right side up and he picks the boy up and he puts him in the wheelchair and he takes out a handkerchief from his pocket and he, dry, he wipes away the blood from the scratches and the little boy starts wheeling his, his, his brother away and he says, thank you, mister, thank you so much. And this guy walks back very slowly to his car and he sees the dent and he vows never ever to fix it because he never wants to forget what happened. And that's the point. You know, they say that God whispers to our minds and he whispers to our hearts. But we're so busy running through life that we don't bother listening. And so when we don't listen. You know what happens? Every so often, God throws a brick at us to wake us up. And I tell people all the time, I had the brick thrown at me. That was 9-11. I tell people, you have a choice. You can listen to the whispers or you can wait for the brick. And how many of us have run into brick walls? But like you said, it's what we do with that brick wall and, and running into it that, that really, really counts. And one of the last things you talk about is, is really talking, and we're going to get a little bit spiritual here, is really talking to God. Not just saying your prayers, but sitting down and talking to God. And yes. I, I believe in that. So your thoughts. Yeah. So, um, and this brings me back to a story that happened in our family with my mom, um, my mom, you know, we're Orthodox Jews, and we pray three times a day. Um, and my mom, there was an issue going on in the family, and it was tearing, it was literally tearing the family apart. And my mom said to me, you know, but I pray every day. And I said, Mom, it's really important to pray. It really is. But every so often, close the prayer book, all right? Sit down and talk to God. He's sitting right in front of you. He's standing right in front of you. Just talk to him. Say, listen, God, this is what I need. These are the issues. This is what I'm going through. We need your help. We can't do this alone. Can you please help us? And I said, and he'll answer you. 
Now, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes the answer is no. And we have to be able to live with that. All right? But oftentimes the answer is yes, and he helps out. And six months later, the whole thing blew over and everything was fine. And, you know, the, uh, it just, you know, the wedding came off like, you know, as it should have, and everybody was happy and everybody was fine. I said, you see, Mom, how often, how often do we worry about things that never, ever come to fruition? Mm-hmm. Do you know that 95% of the time that we're worrying, whatever we're worrying about doesn't, doesn't come to fruition? Did you know that? Well, I believe it, and, and that, it makes me giggle because I had a lot of Jewish friends, and we used to tease about their, their Jewish moms and <laughs> worried about everything. Everything, correct. Everything. The, the Jewish moms and the Italian moms. Yep. Exactly, the, everything. And, and, yeah. and one last thing, Ari, I mean, did you ever have survivor guilt? Oh, I say no. Um, I was I, I was very happy that I survived. My kids were very happy that I survived. Um, I owed it. I owed it to God, and I firmly believe uh, because I get I get the I get the the question all the time of great. So you would say, but what about all the people that were killed? You know, mm-hmm. which is a tough question, but my answer is very simple. Um, do you know, and this was a statistic that was true 20 years ago. I don't know what the numbers are today. But in this world, every day, every single day, 10,000 people die. Mm-hmm. They do, whether it's natural causes, whether it's, you know, traffic accidents, whatever it is, 10,000 people die every single day. So on this day, there were people in that building that never should have been there. And there were people that weren't there that should have been there. All right. What happened was, think about, I think a supercomputer couldn't have done this, but God could. He put all those people whose time had come, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, you know, young, old, we don't know, but their time was up. All right. And God put the things in motion where whoever was supposed to go was going to be there that day. And whoever wasn't supposed to go was not going to be there that day. You know, we had a... Um, we, one of the banks wanted our business, and we were already doing business with another bank and whatever, and ultimately, they kept bothering us about you know, coming in, doing a dog and pony show, so ultimately, we decided was that, you know what, we're not going to give you our corporate business, but we'll open you up to our employees so that you can do a dog and pony show for the employees, and those people that want to sign up with you can, you know, and they said, great, um, what day? Okay, great. We'll put it out. Let's do it. Okay, so we'll do it on September 11th. Okay, great. And there were a bunch of people from the from the bank. Who I'm not going to mention. I'm not going to mention the bank's name, but a bunch of people were there at eight o'clock in the morning, and they were all killed. Mm-hmm. They never should have been there, right? It, right. It just it just all right. And then I had a friend of mine who was who was on the 104th floor. That was his office, and he was he was in the office. But he got a call from a customer who was very upset about one of the products that he had gotten from us, and he demanded that his sales guy come down to his office to show him to show him the problem and to have him fix it. And so he had to leave the office to go to his customer. And then the plane hit. Go figure. Yeah, there's no, there's no, you can't, you can't go through that. But I just, I feel like sometimes when we go through those things, uh, and, and a woman told me this once, is that God allowed things to happen because he would he knew that we would talk about them and i think that's what you've done you've you've made this your mission to educate and elevate uh those that went through it and their families and explain to the rest of us what happened from firsthand i mean i saw it i mean i i was former military so i was more concerned about the pentagon and my friends at the pentagon and my brothers that were nearby but it was the same thing you know, we could only see it from afar, and you explained it, and literally it had me in goosebumps because I could feel you walking down those stairs. I could feel that fire. I could feel the, the, the noise, and that's what we want people to understand is that it happens. It's happening. I mean, in a different way, it happened to the folks down in South Florida last month when the building just right. collapsed. Correct. Things like that happen, and they're not always terrorist-oriented, but they change lives. And Absolutely. what you're doing is helping folks move forward. And that's what Stand Up and Speak Up is all about is 
someone out there needed to hear your story today, and maybe it was someone who wasn't even born when that happened, but now they'll realize that it's, it's like you put it, it's, it's not about the money. Life is not about greed. It's about families, relationships, being kind and stepping up to the plate. My goodness, you know, you think about New Yorkers, and I, I tease because my, my stepdaughter was living up there. I don't always get a warm, fuzzy feeling about folks living in the city. But all of a sudden, you're there helping each other out, except for the hospital kicking you out. Yeah. But you were there helping someone that you could have been really miffed at because she almost ruined your career. But as a final note, are you and Virginia still in contact? Oh, not only are we in contact. Um, first of all, every September 11th, Okay, no matter where we are in the world, and I say that because there was a point, there was one year she was in Italy and I was here. There was another year that I was in Israel and she was here. We always touch base on 9-11. Okay. She, um, she lives down in Florida now with her mom, um, and she comes up to New York every so often, and every time she comes to New York, we get together for lunch, we get together for coffee, you know, we sit, we schmooze. Um, yeah, we've become, we've become very good friends. <laughs> Well, if anybody's in New York City or will get there, please go to the 9-11 Memorial. It is one of the most, for me, a very, it's like going, to, for me, going to the VA cemetery. It's, there's heroes there. There are so many memories there. It's a very reverent place. Uh, uh, it's just, I, I know you go all the time, Ari. You're there. You, you lead tours through that. Uh, it is an amazing experience to go through that all these years later. So. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to tell you something. The, the, the one thing about the museum that amazed me more than anything else and really, really touched me, it is probably, and don't laugh, okay, it is probably the only museum in the world where you don't have to walk through the gift shop to get out of the building. <laughs> now, true. I, yeah, but, but you have to understand something. What does that tell you? It tells you that it wasn't, the, the memorial was not about the money. Yep. Okay, you literally have to try and find. I couldn't find the gift shop. All right, you know when I first went there, they put it away in a corner, basically telling you it's not about the gifts. It's not about. That's not what this museum is about. It's about what happened. It's about, you know. And to me, that showed, you know, such a, uh, you know, such a, a reverence to what happened. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, I, I feel that 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 was the the greatest thing they could have done. All right. The thing that, to, for me, had the most impact was the fact that I don't even know where the gift shop is. So thank you for that, because that's not what it's about. Exactly. It's it's about what happened and remembering the people and and the heroes that went up there and the heroes that came down. And God bless you for for living through it and for sharing your story. How can people get a hold of you, Ari? Okay, so the best way to get a hold of me is uh, you can go to my website, um, .com for my uh, for my podcast. It is whispersandbricks.com, all one word, whispersandbricks.com for my podcast. Um, those are the two best ways. Uh, you can always find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not a big guy on Instagram, so if you're looking for me on Instagram, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> well, you're uh, yeah. everywhere. They just have to, t to Google your name, and it's, it's totally that, that's amazing. That's true. That's true, too. Google, Google my name. Google your name, but, but go to right. Whispers and Bricks, and you've just, we're running out of time, but you just started a new podcast about Holocaust, the Holocaust. Oh, I just did. I recorded a, it's a 10-part series uh, on my podcast. Uh, we've put out the first two parts already. It was a woman who uh, was one of the youngest survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and her story of survival is absolutely amazing. I mean, she talks about when she was four and a half years old, she was digging under a fence to, get, to escape a, a, a German uh, church where she was put in, where she was being abused. Four wow. and a half years old running into the forest. I mean, it's just... Uh, We'll have, a, we'll have another show on that. And everybody, go to whispersandbricks.com. Listen to Ari's podcast. It's amazing. I had the pleasure of being and the honor of being a guest on that show. And, uh, and Ari, thank you so much for, for standing up and speaking up and telling the world what happened after 9-11. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate that.
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles and numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotemian products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, folks, thanks for being with us. Go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com, for additional information and resources and replays of this show. Check out my new book called A Gift Called Fearless. It hit Amazon the other day, and it's been phenomenal. Have a great day, and sorry, thanks for being my guest. Oh, thank you.